listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. How'd the morning duck hunt go? You got oh, it was marvelous. Oh, you got your limit? Yes, mallards uh, of mallards. Yeah, uh, late season, mid October in Alberta is especially good because some of the prairie potholes have uh, frozen up, and the ducks right now are just aggregating prior to their push to the south. So if they see you know swatted barley fields, and uh, that's out there for forage. Temperatures getting slightly cooler, and they're able to keep some of these waters open. Then uh, they get together, and of course, they're beyond their eclipse plumage for the drakes. So you have the bright green-headed drakes out there, and you have these large assemblages of ducks in the late season. So it's truly, truly a wonderful experience. I especially like when the, when they'll cycle down there in a vortex, and they'll come into some of these prairie potholes, and in the twilight, in that morning. Uh, you know, before sunrise, uh, even before shooting light, when you're in the blind and they're literally, you know, two meters, three meters above you looking to land. It's, it's a spectacular sight. And yeah. uh, it's, it's one of the great pleasures of, of, of hunting. And uh, is, it's, it's largely experiential more than anything else. And there's tangible benefits. But just to be able to see... Uh, that volume of birds and that number of birds and uh, and you know the sights the sounds the uh, the action it's just it's just a phenomenal thing that whole progression um, that wildlife and ecosystems go in these major season changes I, I find fascinating like it's moving you know to watch fall come in colors change temperatures change light change watch the changes in waterfowl and aggregate they aggregate up and and it's just this whole it's a like where they end up you know like like way south on these major migratory routes and you're just you're here in northern alberta knowing that these things are like tens of thousands of kilometers still to go oh, it's just sure it's and a it's a moving it, experience it, it really is and you know um I think Fred Bennell from UBC said uh, ecosystems appear stable because ecologists die. And, and that's certainly the case over longer periods of time. But the seasonality uh, in, in terms of how uh, equilibria shift from, from you know, one place to another in natural ecosystems and what the triggers are, it's a, it's a multivariate sort of experience. And, uh, you know, when, when you look at the ducks and the movement and the waterfowl and you look at them in sequence and what's moving here or there and you look at air temperature, humidity, um, what the, what, you know, precipitation up north and all of these variables, variables play out and, you know, and you look at where the, where the ducks are metabolically and, you know, they're, they're essentially, you know, uh, they've got a, they've got a pack on the weight. So they're basically, you know, eating themselves like crazy, packing on the pack, packing on the fat, or the fat, uh, you know, getting fuel for that mitochondria and their muscles to carry them south. And you know, some of these some of these changes are almost very distinct, and uh, and others are quite quite a bit more subtle. 
Yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, it's and 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 then the same thing in the springtime, like you know when, when winter's dissipating and they're you know uh, ducks are moving back or uh, animals' coats are changing. It's this whole rebirth and this major change in in the ecosystem, and and that's the other period of year that I find is just like a really engaging time, really engaging experiences to be outside to just see that it's, it's just an absolute spectacle of nature it to is see. it is and you know i quite often equate a lot of these changes and identify with them with respect to photo period both in the spring and in the fall and you're either losing light or you're gaining light and with that you have massive environmental changes in terms of surface water in terms of you know uh snow loading, nutrient transfers, all of this, they all play into each other. And, you know, we're starting to see patterns shifting. And, you know, one of one of the interesting mechanisms um, or interesting sort of tenets when you look at Alberta is for the longest time, we had fairly stable climate um, patterns. And we had these long, cold, cold winters. And we had periods by which we were minus 30 in February for two, three weeks, minus 30 and colder. We're not getting a lot of that. So we're seeing in the last 25 years, um, uh, for example, in 1997, our white-tailed deer population on a provincial basis was 140,000, and the target was 170,000 for uh, provincial population goal. And 10 years after that, our provincial whitetail population was 270,000. So so you're talking about a, not only a shift in population, you're shifting baselines as well. So where's your population target on a provincial basis there? Uh, all of a sudden you have 270,000. So the golden years, the, the you know, the, the, the golden years were then, right? And, uh, uh, you know, when the chief limiting factor in deer populations in Alberta was was harsh winters, very much along the lines of what happened in Creston in 1996. The orchard owners in, uh, in Creston, they, uh, they screamed bloody murder because uh, there was deer in the orchards all over the place. That was and a bad winter. It was a nasty winter. And I remember very, very distinctly my old boss, Rick Morley in uh, Nelson, uh, crusty, big mustache, Rick Morley, Yosemite Sam and <laughs> and being a colleague went into Rick's office and we kind of half joking. We said, we got a brilliant idea to, uh, to get rid of the, uh, the deer in Creston to reduce the population. He said, what's that? You too. Kind of like J Jonah Jameson. <laughs> and, uh, and we, I just finished a really great book on, uh, on, uh, game management in South Africa where they talked about culling and so forth. And, and, me and my, my colleague, we said, well, we're going to get the back of pickup trucks. Of course, we were joking. We're going to get the back of the pickup trucks, and we're not going to use rifles or anything because it's too loud. We're going to use bows with curare-tipped arrows. And Rick just says, you two blanks, get the hell out of my office. And <laughs> so that was, that was that winter. But, you know, that winter was essentially the primary limiting factor to those deer, and they essentially crashed. So in Alberta, over the last 20 years, We've had the odd harsh winter, but in terms of tenure averages, and I think that's the appropriate time frame when you start looking at uh, surveyed population 
um, cycles. It's not really cyclic. It's dependent on a variety of factors. We used to have a significant amount of winter, late winter mortality occur and uh, because of snow depth and access to food. So if you don't have access to food because you're pawing through snow and you're expending that much kind of energy, then you know, you're, you're, you're gonna starve. So um, we haven't had those really severe winters occurring in sequence over the last 25 years in, in Alberta. So consequently, you know, we have an abundance of forage in terms of agriculture and we don't have the severe winters, so our cervid populations are going to go up. So we're starting to see mule deer populations, white-tailed deer populations, um, you know, elk populations and moose populations in the prairies and the parkland areas go up. Cool. And, you know, in the foothills and in the boreal forest, traditionally where we had our, uh, and when I say traditionally, sort of, you know, uh, post-20th century after settlement was was really quite rampant is um you know we had deer or we had sorry we had elk and moose occurring in boreals and foothills habitats and uh you know since since then you know we've had a fairly low tolerance for those species out there and environmental conditions weren't exactly the best for them but in the last 20 to 25 years um you know our deer populations have, have increased almost geometrically um we have you know according to common lotka volterra predator prey dynamics you're going to get a response in carnivores and carnivore populations and in terms of wolves uh cougars bears we're starting to see increases in the boreal and foothills habitats there and according to studies done at the university of alberta by uh evie merrill and her grad students uh, in places like the Yaha Tenda, you're starting to see some elk movements east onto the prairies in the parkland area. And that's also drawing some carnivores as well. Big so changes. Really big changes. Wow. Hey, everybody. Um, welcome to the conversation. It's uh, Mark Hall here, your host. And Curtis, co-host. Uh, and we're in the capital of Alberta today in Edmonton, and uh, we're joined by uh, Matt Besco, Director of Wildlife for Alberta Environment and Parks. Yes, Welcome. Indeed. Thanks so much for having me. Alberta is an amazingly ecologically rich province, isn't it? It really is. It really is. When we talk about, you know, sheer bi biological diversity, we look to places like BC and uh, some parts of Southern Ontario, in terms of you know diversity of species itself but in alberta we're blessed with a diversity of landscapes and ecoregions yep so um you know when dr rowe developed uh, ecological mapping sometime in the 70s you know we have everything you know from short grass prairie native short grass prairie to uh prairie parkland uh, interface boreal mixwood foothills alpine and uh, true boreal forest we also have shield occurring north of Fort Chip as well. So in and terms the Rocky of, Mountains. And the Rocky Mountains <laughs> and the Alpine. So, you know, that diversity of landscapes and, and ecological regions in Alberta, I think, really is what makes it special. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the fundamental ecological concepts that I've always subscribed to, especially when you come to, um, you know, ecosystem management or restoration, is, is that a diversity of plant life creates a diversity of wildlife 
Yes. And, uh, you know, in terms of the ecology and, you know, and I always like to use, use British Columbia as an example because I worked in both BC and, and Alberta and, and I also worked in Saskatchewan for a couple of years as well. And in BC, I always thought in terms of diversity and changes in ecosystems, uh, in terms of, you know, biogeoclimatic units, it was a vertical, it was a vertical um, changes. So you'd go from, you know, uh, you know, the interior cedar hemlock, dry, warm, ungulate winter ranges uh, to the angled and spruce subalpine fir. And you had that, you know, in a matter of, you know, 1500 meters, your ecosystems changed completely. And so did the vegetation diversity. In Alberta, um, a lot of these changes are sort of latitudinal. They're topographic uh, in in, in changes as well as elevational. But, you know, when you look at the boreal forest and you see, you know, hummocks, uh, you're looking at, you know, possibly some morainal influence uh, and you're looking at things like jack pine and aspen sharing those, those systems there. And, you know, it dips down to a fire skip or a deep ravine. You see that old growth uh, white spruce occur and then you know you're into a black spruce bog all of a sudden and you could do this within two three four hundred meters and then you're in a stand of aspen right so you're going from clay soils to sandy soils to regosolic soils in riparian areas and then corresponding changes in the vegetation it's that, really really an that, interesting that boreal system. region of the alberta plateau for me ecologically is absolutely fascinating like it just looks like a big fat flat swamp you know, pe yeah. people would say, yeah. but yeah, like, and, and like I even notice sometimes like the changes in ecosystems just with over a couple of meters, you know, like you've got sphagnum bog, you know, some black spruce, but you get a little, a little rise in the, in the, the, the ground of a meter. And now you've got cladina moss and your tamarack because yeah. it's yeah. slightly drier. Yeah. And, and the other thing I found fascinating up there is the landscape, you know, we always talk about, you know, disturbance factors, you know, fire, those, those types of things. A lot of that boreal region, one of the main disturbance factors or mechanisms seem to be the beaver. Like when you fly yeah. in a helicopter, yeah. it's like either that area is flooded and forest is like dying, or you see these ancient old, you know, dams that, that were, they had been, yeah. and then they're, they're big willow, willow bottoms it, and it, stuff because they've grown in and, and just, yeah. they it, look like they're the architect of the boreal forest. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. And I always say, you know, natural ranges of variability are not you know, just abiotic in nature, they're biotic as well. And so when you see the influx and the changes in terms of water distribution and abundance on a boreal landscape, um, you can't, you can't but identify the beaver as a, as a primary, you know, factor in the development of that. Um, I always think of when I think about the boreal forest and, and, you know, northern forested environments, it always brings me back to a paper that um, Stan Booten at the uh, University of Alberta brought to my attention when I was um, <laughs> back in the 80s when, uh, when I was doing my, my degree. Is, um, uh, the paper was the stability time hypothesis um, talking about benthic um, uh, diversity in Arctic environments. And essentially, um, the premise of that is 
you know, you're, when you're dealing in harsher envir environments, colder environments where abiotic factors, there's physical limitations with respect to energy flow and food chain lengths tend to be shorter in those places. And so you're not really branches, branched off in terms of alternate, you know, forage or alternate prey, things like that. So the susceptibility to a catastrophic change occurring in there is much higher because you're bound by these really, really harsh physical factors occurring on the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Dr. DeRoge talked about that in the last episode with polar bears in the Arctic. It was, it's like phytoplankton, fish seals, polar bear. Yeah. Like there, that's there it. you go, right? And, and Take the sea ice right? away and the phytoplankton can't produce and it's like, bang, you're at the yeah. top of your food chain yeah. right away. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, oh. you know, species that are more plastic in, in, in response to changes in the environment, you know, they've got a more webbed, you know, relationship to other organisms and, you know, they will easily shift trophic levels when they need to, in order to get, yeah. you know, in order to get by. And, uh, you know, you can make analogies between R and K selected species, but, you know, in the boreal, you, you have both, both of those species occurring, but when you're limited by physical conditions that are essentially life and death, you know, um, cold winters, the winter, long winters, cold winters, frozen long soils, winters, frozen those, soils, yeah. forage, prey availability. And, you know, so when you say beavers changing the environment, it, yeah, absolutely. It, and there's so many variables that are involved. It's beavers, fire, um, you know, snow loading, winters, uh, and all of these various cycles that are taking, it's a fascinating, wonderful place. Absolutely. Yeah. So in that fascinating, wonderful place, uh, as the director, what do you direct? What's, what's, so I'm, what's your my, job? So my job is essentially the management uh, of allocation of wildlife in Alberta. I manage the hunting programs. Okay. Um, I also manage the uh, carnivore program in Alberta, um, all of those species as well. Um, uh, we also, you know, we have a specific um, program area around species at risk, but there's some crossover because we do deal because as game species, species such as uh, wooden plains bison, um, grizzly bear, um, those species are under our purvey as well. Okay. Um, so uh, we manage a number of different game species, waterfowl, upland birds, uh, big game, 12 species of big game um, for approximately 120,000 residents and uh, 10,000 non-residents in Alberta. Uh, um, we also manage hun hunters. The hunters. Hunters, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, we, we uh, also um, uh, manage the uh, human wildlife uh, conflict program as well. Uh, so if we have um, depredation type events occurring uh, on the landscape, we have a program in order to manage those. Pred uh, predators killing livestock. And, and, and we have a, a predator livestock compensation program occur as well. So we also we have a program where species like deer and elk are after haystacks or standing forage or breaking fences, things like mm. that. And then we have a no, another program to provide compensation to livestock producers when, uh, when uh, large carnivores will uh, prey on their livestock. Yeah, yeah. So what are, um, what are some of your big focus areas and, and conservation concerns right now in so, your programs? So right now we're dealing with a number of them, but I think one of the primary um, uh, 
issues that uh, we're dealing with is chronic wasting disease. And we've had chronic wasting disease in Alberta since the early 2000s. And uh, we've had a steady progression and increase in terms of the prevalence, primarily that in mule deer, more so than white-tailed deer, and uh, as well as distribution. So we have a, a steady stream of CWD in our uh, cervid populations moving from east to west. And we're at the cusp right now, I believe, uh, in terms of a, a change in terms of our population dynamics, primarily in mule deer, uh, because we're starting to see prevalence uh, in certain populations to occur somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. And that's problematic because we've seen, you know, uh, three studies completed out of Colorado that are showing, you know, population declines in some of their cervid populations, uh, 36, 40 percent. And uh, the prevalence there when they started to see those population declines when they're completely attributed to the effects of CWD on the landscape was um, uh, when that prevalence was between 15 and 20 percent. So we're right on the cusp of that. So, you know, we're looking at what are our objectives right now to the manage, management of chronic wasting disease. Um, so we know that we have chronic wasting disease. It's here to stay in Alberta. We're no longer a sink for CWD. We're a source for CWD. We'd like to do several things. One, we would like to uh, reduce the probability of disease transmission animal to animal um, and, and lower that transmission rate. And secondly, uh, we would like to uh, reduce the prevalence of CWD in uh, wildlife management units that have a fairly high prevalence. Uh, so we'd like to be able to, you know, uh, limit the spread or slow the spread geographically and also reduce the prevalence in some of these units. And we're following some prescribed protocols as identified by the Association of Fish and Wildlife uh, Agencies in North America as well as uh, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, WAFWA. And, um, you know, we're talking to Saskatchewan, we're talking to Montana and the other jurisdictions and, uh, uh, you know, maintaining that consistency in terms of our approach. So is that you're primarily talking density reduction? Well, there's been some recent studies. There's been an excellent study completed in Norway uh, in terms of looking at density um uh, you know, uh, uh, dependence and density independence in places like that, you know, density dependence and frequency dependence. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some um, evidence that the Norwegians were able to piece together saying that CWD and the progression of CWD and its effect on game populations was not density dependent. But in Alberta, uh, Dr. Evie Merrill at the U of A has modeled and done excellent work with respect to CWD progression in uh, in uh, eastern Alberta on the landscapes. And she's finding that it's not really a density or a frequency-dependent issue. There's other variables that will play into this. So, for instance, the presence or absence of cover in the environment um, will have a play with respect to influencing whether or not it's density-dependent or frequency-dependence. So what does that mean in terms of our management? So uh, when, we, when we look at some of these landscapes that we have in, in southeastern Alberta, uh, we know that the 
primary vectors or vector highways for the transmission along our major river corridor areas. So if we're able to go into there and identify certain class of animal within a population that has the highest probability of disease infection prevalence or that acts as a vector and we're seeing you know uh, 67% of all positives uh, in Alberta are mature mule deer bucks. So if we're able to target that class of animal uh, and start reducing the prevalence in units as well as limiting the spread, that is one tool that we have. Um, is that, you know, uh, a favorable tool? Well, a lot of people have big problems with that. Yeah. So, you know, we have the commercial hunting community whose clients depend on the, the management of quality animals and that's you know the sustainability around that and we have to recognize that that's a legitimate concern at the same time we also have to recognize what is the long-term health of our cervid populations going to be uh, we know that you know the prion will mutate it has several strains um, we know and and i don't want to be alarmist in any in any way but a study done by the you know Alberta Prion Research Institute out of Lethbridge released a paper a couple of years ago with respect to um, the long-term uh, risk of uh, of of muscle you know uh, prion infected muscle CWD infected muscle tissue being fed to macaque monkeys over time and then you know a sample of those becoming positive with CWD so both Alberta Health and Health Canada have issued health advisory saying that all hunters that harvest cervids uh, in Alberta should have those um, animals tested before consuming them and their recommendation is is that if that animal is positive with chronic wasting disease it should not be consumed so we're not a food safety uh, testing agency so we're monitoring the spread you know we tested last year we tested 6,500 heads this year we want to test somewhere around 8,000 and uh, we're monitoring the spread and the prevalence of CWD in the landscape and that just like the seasons we talked about earlier we're starting to see shifts in terms of their patterns of prevalence so we're starting to see an uptake right now in white-tailed deer um, which is really interesting and we're starting to see higher prevalence in whitetails right now. Well, it make it may, it makes sense when you talked earlier about like the explosion you've had in your whitetail population, right? Like they they must literally be intermingled with your mule deer. Yeah, it's stable since 2007 and you know, we don't we don't have those those huge huge populations anymore and uh and our mule deer populations in, in many of the units in southeastern Alberta, they're actually quite healthy, and some of them are increasing. Um, but, you know, let's see what the long-term consequences of having uh, CWD on the landscape shows. And, uh, you know, the science around chronic wasting disease is quickly, quickly evolving. So do we have all the answers? We don't. But what we do know uh, in places and jurisdictions that have had it in the longest is there are population level concerns. So, you know, are, are we going to do something about it here other than just monitoring the spread? Are we going to take active steps in order to reduce the probability of CWD occurring in our populations? And I think we need to move that way. Yeah. But you're at the same time sort of bracing and, and for... <sighs> 
workforce and population declines similar yes. to what they've seen in the states. Yes. Yeah. And, yes. and as well as some of the eastern U.S. states have seen some fairly fairly big drops in their whitetail populations. Um, yeah. Same thing. It was, it was interesting, like in Wisconsin and um, places like that, where they're talking about like a 50% prevalence prevalence rate in mature bucks. Yeah. So you get a mature whitetail buck uh, in some of those states and it's, you flip a quarter, you know, like a, yeah. and it's a 50-50 chance that that one's infected. So it's, What's, what's interesting about Wisconsin and Illinois is they, they got CWD, and uh, I think I'm right, more or less at the same time, and they had, you know, an, similar rates of prevalence over time. Uh, Illinois, just given the size of the state and the density of hunters that they had to use as a management tool, uh, Illinois uh, decided to incorporate some fairly intensive management and culling in Wisconsin uh, for one reason or another, did not. And then you saw the subsequent prevalence rate in both states. Illinois actually managed to hold the line. Yeah, and yeah. Wisconsin, <clears> and know, I know I've talked to some people, uh, I think we talked about this in one of the previous episodes on CWD in British Columbia, but um, things got very political in Wisconsin. Yeah, um, yeah. Hunters didn't, they were denial. They were like, you know, it's this is not real and there's no problem with our deer hunting. They got political. Um, you know, some people changed office, funding programs were yeah. cut, the requirement, mandatory submission of heads was cut and programs were cut back and stuff where Illinois just like, you know, steadied the ship steady as she goes. And, and so you had a divergence of these two case studies and Wisconsin completely lost control. And like you said, Illinois managed to, and from what I understand, Illinois was under that aggressive Yes. Harvesting regime is keeping their prevalence rate around 2%. Yeah. That's the last yeah. I read which, of it. So. Which is amazing for, <laughs> for, a, for uh, you know, the prevalence distribution of, of a disease like CWD. I mean, you can tolerate any disease at a 2, 2% prevalence rate in your population. Yeah, like, you likely. know, whatever it is, starvation is probably higher than yeah. 2, 2%, oh, yeah, you know, so, so yeah. yeah, they're, they're kind of a, a good example of develop a plan, keep the politics out of it and, and carry, let the managers carry the plan out. So, yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because, uh, in any jurisdiction that I've worked in or, you know, visited, you have a number of different stakeholders that each of them have expressed various opinions and, uh, present data, um, that align with their interests and, and we certainly have to respect that. And we use science in order to be able to inform a lot of that decision-making that occurs um, in collaboration with a lot of the stakeholders that move forward. So we, the worst thing is to be tone deaf and to say, you know, this is what we as a management agency believe and we're just gonna move forward with that. And we've worked really hard in order to engage a number and a good cross-section of stakeholders that occur here in Alberta to make sure that they're being heard when we move forward. And at the same time, the onus is on us um, as as a, a statutory decision-making agency in order to be able to present the best science, the best information, and to be able to forecast what are the risks um, to our environmental health as a result of increased prevalence of this, of this disease. And that's a responsibility of government for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, 
that's a gut-wrenching subject for yeah for hunters all over north america cwd um caribou still a pretty big issue here in alberta yes um i i i don't really work on the caribou file um but it certainly is a a, a big issue and uh you know the species at risk folks have been working on that for a number of years and uh you know there's some parallels streams of management that are occurring there in the south selkirk south selkirks in bc as well as here and a paper was just released by uh, rob soroy out mm-hmm. of out of uh, bc showing the effects of uh, managing predators in terms of uh, what the resultant factors would be on the population response of of caribou and that was uh, that was positive. Um, the same sort of management regime is occurring here. Same sort of benefits are occurring as a result of that. But it's uh, it's not anything that I can really speak to. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember one of the main things from his paper was that the uh, the multiple management levers yes. is where they were getting the the, the, the most of, the most effect. Yes. Um, yeah. Now Rob's a character too. Yeah, I, well, I, we had him on the show. Yeah, he was, oh. I think he was episode two. Yeah, yeah. we went up yeah. to Revelstoke. Yeah, that was that was great. Yeah, I worked yeah. with worked with Rob <laughs> on a number of projects. Then he came here and he did some work for us as well. Yeah, because he's with he's out of the ABMI here yeah. at the university. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. great. Now, was it in the springtime or early summer? I think we were both on a conference call together with Brian Brook on the wild pig symposium right did you sit in sit on uh, that one? no i didn't okay i thought I he was didn't. i thought he was asking you some questions and stuff oh, on well, online he may or, have. He, yeah he may have uh, you know i'm sorry mark I, my memory is just well that was a while ago yeah, like i couldn't what? even remember when it was that may, but, that may have been so yeah. but you got wild pigs here and yeah we do and uh you know it's it's really interesting because uh you know, we're dealing with a number of threats from invasive species, aquatic invasive species, you know, in, in Alberta, and, uh, and, and we have wild boar. And, uh, you know, in, in many other jurisdictions, and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I've hunted in Poland twice, and uh, it's, it's uh, where my family's from, and uh, we've hunted wild boar there, and they put wild boar on a pedestal of you know absolutely the game to go you know hunt and there's real deep and old traditions around hunting wild boars throughout europe and i've hunted roebuck in germany as well and and uh you know the the hunters they say well you should really go to poland because the the wild boars are huge there and you know and and you know there's an overpopulation there and they're also dealing with uh you know diseases uh, african uh african uh, swine fever hemorrhagic fever is uh is taking root there and they're using hunting as a as a tool in order to manage that um here you know it's different all of a sudden um, you know, you have an environment here where wild boars are able to make it through a winter. You have an abundant source of forage. You have a lot of cover, and uh, predators here really haven't keyed on to uh, hunting wild boar. And a mature wild boar is a formidable animal. So, uh, you know, to get a wolf or a cougar uh, or a bear to uh, take down a mature kyla, as they say in Germany, <laughs> is would be quite quite something and uh well so just to put that boar. into perspective the show we did with ryan uh brooke there on on the wild pigs in canada like uh, 
we equated that those the wild pigs could reach a size that rival like the weight like of a grizzly bear in the Rocky Mountains. Wow. You know, like they're not yeah, as big see, as the coastal I, bears. I think I think he said that the 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 biggest pig that they ever captured was like 750 pounds that is something. and the, somewhere in the there. biggest grizzly bear in the elk valley that clayton lamb said that i think he captured and collared was like 700 pounds yeah. or something yeah, so like yeah. that they, like, they were they so so it's like yeah i think any self-respecting grizzly bear pack you, of wolves is probably just gonna like go the other way you when know, they see those you things. get a, a mature interior grizzly bear and uh you know, yeah. If you, the biggest of the biggest, are around seven hundred pounds yeah. for an for an interior bear. Swan Hills, you know, here we have uh, probably a larger, you know, um, phenotype of that uh, of of that species. But um, so pr- predation's just not an issue when they hit the west here. It's oh, for it's pigs, just not. And um, so we're seeing, you know, where we've had. Um, you know, escapees and, you know, populations of, of pigs that have basically settled in the agricult- agricultural parts of the landscape, their access to forage is just, I mean, incredible. They have all the forage they would need. And it was always thought that they just wouldn't be able to survive the winters. But we're not seeing the harsh winters that we used to have. And as you know, probably from your discussions with Ryan, you know, um, you know, can you just hunt them? Well, no, it's, the, there's a number of other factors, right? They'll go nocturnal or they'll disperse. And, you know, in Europe, um, given the organizational abilities that they have around the hunt clubs, they're able to, um, to use hunting as effective management tool. Um, but we don't, you know, especially in Western Canada, we certainly don't have the tradition and the culture of, of hunting pigs, uh, and in Europe, it's they use a dog. In fact, my dog was bred to hunt pigs. It's a long-haired Weimaraner, a versatile hunting dog, a pointer. Uh, I use it exclusively on birds, but uh, but in Europe, they use it both on fur and feathers. And that's the tradition: is you run boar with dogs. So. Is there a management program for them yeah, here in Alberta? Is it monitoring? Is it because they're not they're not uh, classified as wildlife? Their status of wild pigs is not wildlife. Then uh, the jurisdictional management of that species falls to Alberta Agriculture. Okay. So they're not they're not wildlife. They're considered a pest species and invasive. And uh, and Alberta Agriculture has a program that is in place in order to. Uh, capture pigs and and uh, reduce the reduce their prevalence so as far as your hunting regulations go they're just silent on yeah non-wildlife and, and yeah um you know you can harvest pigs if you see pigs occurring in the landscape you know and there are people that do that but they're not governed under any sort of regulation okay. that we have uh, for hunting okay now just before the episode we were talking a little bit about about moose and elk and some of the big changes you're seeing here in yeah. Alberta with those guys. Yeah, so, you know, I, I really, really think that um, we're starting to see uh, a distribution of those two species of moose and elk occurring um, as it probably was during the David Thompson era and Lewis and Clark, just for, <laughs> further south. 
you know, we're counting, we're, we're encountering elk on a prairie landscape and on a parkland landscape as well. So, uh, and moose as well. So we, we often think of moose as being a purely boreal species, but when you uh, look in some places in southern Alberta and you see six bulls trotting through the canola, you know, to get to some browse, you know, occurring in a willow bottom, you, 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 you know, it's a paradigm shift more than anything else. And uh, so we, we saw, because of uh, increased uh, cervid populations occurring in boreal foothills uh, and, you know, prairies, parklands as well, um, and, and milder winters and the subsequent population increases in our cervid population um, by virtue of, you know, as I said before, lack of Volterra population, prey, uh, predator dynamics. Well, we're seeing increases in corresponding increases on a cyclical lag basis uh, with respect to predators. And now we have increased populations of cougars, wolves, uh, and bears occurring on the landscape. And, uh, you know, in places in the foothills, and we still have most of our elk occurring in the foothills, but some of those populations have established themselves further east and also in uh, Canadian Forces Base Suffield a number of years ago, we put 200 elk in there. Uh, they grew to a population of over 8,000, a matter of 15, you know, 18 <laughs> years. So, you know, there's no pre predators and uh, and all of a sudden they'll disperse beyond the boundaries of Suffield and causing uh, great amounts of grief and uh, with respect to depredation, fences, um, you know, depredation on stored feed, uh, uh, standing feed, uh, elk are a formidable animal with respect to that in a, in a late winter scenario. Uh, they're big, they can eat a lot, uh, they can break fences, uh, the ranchers in southern Alberta uh, are not happy um, when populations are that high. So we've implemented a fairly intensive hunting program within and outside of Suffield. Population right now is probably about 27, 2800 right now. So our goal there is to um, maintain and, uh, you know, maintain elk on the landscape. And now we're seeing elk populations throughout the prairies, throughout the parkland. There's no predation occurring for them out there. And, and there's plenty of things for them to eat. So our goal is to maintain sustainable populations of elk to occur on these landscapes and minimize uh, human uh, uh, wildlife conflicts as they occur. So we want to minimize the depredation in the Peace Region, minimize the depredation occurring in uh, the Pincher Creek area and uh, in uh, southeastern Alberta as well, where those populations occur. In so that's numbers. social carrying capacity. Yeah, it's as real as ecological carrying capacity, perhaps uh, even more pointed in, in, that, uh, in that way. I think Alberta, in terms of, you know, carrying capacity for ungulates, I, I would not be surprised if we've never hit an ecological carrying capacity in, in, on a provincial basis. There's such an abundance of food here, and um, especially in the agricultural land base, it would be hard-pressed to get to carrying capacity. I think K is a interesting thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, Alberta doesn't have the numbers of grizzly bears on this side of the Rockies as, as British Columbia. They were a pretty 
pretty big concern a um, number of years ago, um, like their their levels and stuff. How, from a conservation perspective, what's so, what's happening with gri- grizzly so, bears? So grizzly bears, you know, given the last uh, status assessment, um, you know, we're we're definitely listed um, as a species at risk, and that triggered a recovery plan. Uh, to, to move forward and um, you know a hunting of grizzly bears uh, ended in the in the mid 2000s um, you know subsequent to that we've seen evidence of of population increases throughout the province uh, we've completed inventory and monitoring in you know uh, all but two of our bear management areas on a provincial basis right now um, a lot of the work started um, in the uh, southwest along the BC Alberta border, um, and that population is certainly contiguous with Montana um, and BC, and they were coming over the hump and ending up in the Elk Valley. So that's that back. whole Waterton Castle yeah. Yeah. region. Okay. And you know, since then we've been uh, implementing you know uh, the DNA hair capture work and. Uh, we're just going to get a revised population estimate in the next year or two, uh, but we're seeing trend information um, with respect to grizzlies that our grizzly bear population is recovering, and we're seeing positive numbers of grizzly bears on the landscape. Um, that being said, uh, there's uh, potential for human-wildlife conflict, uh, human-wildlife uh, infrastructure uh, issues that we're dealing with. We're, we have... Every year along the foothills, we're getting higher and higher numbers of uh, livestock incidents, uh, predator-related, grizzly bear-related, um, and claims occurring with respect to uh, livestock losses. Uh, anecdotally, we're getting a lot of reports of an increased grizzly bear population, both in terms of distribution and, 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 and abundance as well. So, you know, uh, in order to recover the species completely, um, there's tools that we can look at, and uh, uh, you know, in our in our recovery plan, we have um, core areas. We have support zones to those core areas. We have areas outside of those support zones. So we'd like to be able to maintain grizzly bear populations at healthy levels within those core areas. The areas in the support zone would offer uh, an opportunity for some of those grizzly. Um, uh, bears to be able to contribute to that population and there's areas that are outside of that support zone and tend to be in areas that uh, bears get into human wildlife conflict and we there's tools that are available that uh, we could look at in order to um, minimize that probability of human wildlife conflict um, so there's awareness programs that we have out there we have bear smart program uh, in order to minimize that probability. And, Tract and, and management, carcass management. management. Uh, open active road density. You know, there's a number of tools that are available and, um, you know, as well as as well as harvest. And, and harvest is probably our most controversial uh, issue. We haven't even proposed that, but it's one tool that is available in that, uh, in that toolkit. But before we even get there, I think we should give it a good evaluation mm-hmm. for the other tools that we have. Now, what, what's, your, what's your take on the pulse of people's tolerance? Like well, um, there's an interesting article written about four or five years ago by Terry Wheeland in uh, one of the outdoor magazines, and, 
and uh, it was something along the lines of the tolerance level with respect to large carnivores is is uh, inversely proportional to the distance that you live you know from them or something <laughs> something like that so that tends to hold true and I always remember that and Terry's a very good writer and uh, so you know the closer you live to grizzly bears and if you have uh, a business or a livelihood um, with with dealing largely with prey i.e livestock uh, and you have grizzly bears occurring in that landscape your tolerance isn't going to be as high as uh, someone living in an urban environment that do not have that day-to-day -day you know conflict that being said um, you know, there's people that do live in places in uh, grizzly bear habitat and bear habitat, places like Canmore, where there's great amounts of effort in order to be able to coexist and minimize that conflict and tolerate those species. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the I definitely, you know, like the, the cattle producers where, you know, it's the most sensitive, you know, to them. It's got to be a, a stressful way to live and you know, and work in calving season and to know all of a sudden you've got two, three, four bears on your land and, you know, especially those big ranches over on, you know, 22X and, you know, in the along the foothills of the yeah. Rockies and stuff. Yeah. It's got to be kind of more of a hot spot, like oh, bears pulsing oh, in and out of the Rockies and into those, those farmlands. So. And, th and those bears tend to stay. <clears throat> they will stay in that general area and... You know, I have had uh, ranchers call me to say that they will not, you know, drop their kids off at the school bus, uh, the little kiosk that they have. Out on the end of the road. Out there, on the yeah, end yeah. of the road. And uh, <laughs> in, in that country when there's a bear around that's, uh, you know, made a kill on one of their calves or, 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 or uh, other species that they would uh, ranch. But it's an uh, interesting dynamic, seasonally. Uh, you know, you may have a tolerance level, and in other seasons you may not have. And th that level of tolerance will depend on your stake in the game. So, you know, if it's your livelihood, if it's, you know, the risk to livestock, your stake is, is higher. Um, you know, it, it, it's also with respect to human safety as well. Um, that is, is certainly, um, you know, a limiting factor for tolerance as well. We have to make sure that we do the the right steps in order to minimize that probability of conflict to yeah. occur. The, the level of habituation, because there's, you know, the human population in Alberta is growing significantly. We're in grizzly bear habitat. Grizzly bears are in our habitat. We're starting to see, like earlier this spring, we had two uh, grizzly bears occur in the uh, municipality of Rocky Mountain House, which is a sizable, you know, community. And uh, they were after people's garbage, right? And this is outside what we would consider the normal distribution of grizzly bears in Alberta, but not anymore. And that level of habituation that occurs on a landscape uh, basically is a setup for, for conflict. Yeah. And that, you know, we have to, I think, as a management agency, I think we're responsible and accountable for a great deal of education around the management of of not only um, wildlife but also um, being able to influence the education with respect to people and how people will be able to 
live with and, and even utilize different species of wildlife. Quite often people will say, you know, um, well, the bears were here first. And it's that concept of primacy that tends to be, you know, what they drive. Well, you know, in nature, in nature, it doesn't matter if you were here first or not. If you're bigger, faster, stronger, with bigger <laughs> teeth and so forth, if you're second, third, or 137th, you're, you know, competition-wise, uh, you're the alpha, you're the species that's going to be able to um, exploit that niche and stay there because ecosystems change, um, you know, dynamics change, trophic levels will shift, and all of a sudden you're a, dealing with these things. It's, so it's a bare bare world out there yeah, for them, and, and you know, and literally, it literally is. And people will often come to to me and they'll say, "Well, look, um, there's nature, and then there's people, and they're different." And you know, uh, this is a really interesting issue, and probably the number one issue for us. So as biologists, we're really good. If someone says, uh, you should not hunt this animal because this animal, you know, belongs here and it is a sentient being and has feelings and, and, and many of those other variables, um, you know, you should not hunt it. Our response as biologists is, well, we have a sustainable population of species uh, X and the habitat upon uh, which it depends. And uh, population trend information is this and this and this. So that's what biologists are really good at, uh, you know, uh, responding with and saying, well, the harvest of the species will not harm the overall population, the long-term integrity and the genetic health and so forth. And uh, we're able to tailor our harvest regimes and our management regimes in order to maintain good structure in this population. Well, that's not what the question was. It's not what the comment was. It's like, this is a value-based judgment. So as biologists, we have to very quickly move into uh, a level of expertise around the human dimensions around wildlife. And, uh, and we're starting to explore that more and more. Uh, we had Charles List. Have you heard of Charles List? Um, is he from the U.S.? Yeah, he's from uh, State University of New York in Syracuse, I believe. Okay, okay. And uh, he wrote a book on uh, reconnecting, uh, you know, hunters and anglers back to ethics. He's actually a philosopher. He's not okay. a biologist. Okay. And he's not a sociologist, a human uh, dimensions person like Mike Manfredo is from Colorado. And he's a philosopher. And, you know, we also had Nate Kowalski here at the U of A uh, edit a book on the philosophy of hunting a number of years ago. And I think this is the future of, of wildlife management in Alberta and in North America is not only dealing with the biology and physical management of wildlife and ecological systems, but incorporating human beings as an element within that. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 I. It's one of the places I feel like that uh, south of the border in the United States, some of the and some of the jurisdictions, they're farther ahead on that social science yeah. side of things because they do have human dimension specialists on staff. So you know you've got your biologist doing you know the the population work, the, the the wildlife work, but then they're also running you know surveys like you know. If, if the state were to increase the black bear harvest um, from one to two, what would, 
how, how would the public respond to that? And then they, they bring back these legitimate scientific studies that say yeah. out of the population, the sample size, this percentage of the people were in favor, strongly against. They can split hunters out from non-hunters. And then that that information, which which is science, in my opinion, when we talk about science, well, science-based wildlife much, management very much uh, is not just the biological, ecological side, yeah. but then both both of those types of science, let's say the biological, ecological, and the social science is on the table for the statutory decision maker to take into consideration. And I don't think we do enough of that in Canada. Yeah, and we certainly will be doing more and more of it. And, uh, you know, um, we have to be able to show that uh, our behavior is not only ecologically responsible, but virtuous as well. Yep. And and how we deal with wildlife needs to be a virtuous experience. Because I think, I don't know if it's happening here, I know what happens in British Columbia, but it's, it's, a, it's a large part of the division within the hunting community is people disagreeing on what they think everybody thinks. Um, but then it's also part of the, it's the continual wedge between the non-hunting and the hunting communities that are trying to come together to work for the better of conservation, um, that these, these, these value-based management decisions, everybody having equal say in stuff, is, it's, a, it's a big barrier for moving forward right now. And uh, I, it would, I think it would just serve us so much better here in Canada to be moving much faster forward on that social science side. Yeah, and, to, and really, here, here at the University of Alberta and other universities that we've had and other, you know, we're starting to move in that direction and we're starting to, and we have some really good PhD grads uh, out there that are, uh, and we have a couple that work in an Alberta environment and... Uh, it's, you know, we're starting to incorporate their knowledge and expertise into some of these questions. So when we engage with the public, a lot of those elements with respect to human dimensions are in. And we're, and even then, we're missing a really broad stakeholder group. So, uh, you know, in the Association of Fish and Wildlife uh, Agencies, um, you know, there was a group tasked with assigning relevance of wildlife, and I sat on that for some time. And uh, it wasn't just relevance of wildlife to particular engaged, interested stakeholder groups like hunters and birders and hikers and so forth. There's uh, relevance challenges with respect to the broader non-hunting, non-nature-oriented, non-hiking, not non-birding public. And how do we engage with those people uh, in, in order to um, let them know uh, we live in, in, in quite a unique and interesting and fascinating place where you can enjoy wildlife, where you can see wildlife, and wildlife will interact with you. So it's, it's, it's a huge, huge challenge, but we definitely have to move that way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you, <laughs> you hope that when the social science is on the table, we can say, look, you know, like 68% of the population and, you know, said they supported X and you're still going to have people go, well, the science is wrong. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's the thing is, you know, you nobody, have to, nobody I know that feels that way. Yeah, so. And, and, you know, that's where the human dimensions comes into play. And the, the human dimensions, the sociological work ties in with the ecological uh, research that's out there and we're able to bring those two together so our research the science the 
the management, our counts. Um, and if we're able to convey that information and engage with the public and supplement that information and supplement that data with what people are say seeing on the landscape, they're engaged, they're part of the process, we're part of the process, and hopefully we're able to move together. Uh, we shouldn't be leery of the science, but I think in the past it was viewed as, you know, the, the typical black box, right? I don't know what you did to come up with those numbers for allocating mule deer, but uh, it's beyond me because I'm seeing way more, mm -hmm. way fewer, and I'm not seeing the same deer and so forth. And then you bring out the aerial survey data and you'll say, well, on a unit basis, you know, this is very different. And I said, well, I haven't seen that. So how do we bridge those two knowledge sources together? And, you know, from us, part of the challenge is, okay, here's when we survey, here's the scale at which we survey. And, you know, do we count for movements from unit to unit based on an annual or seasonal? Well, no, it's, you know, point source, point in time. This is what our density estimates are. And, and this individual that we'd be talking to, a hunter, may be hunting the same five square kilometers every single year. And that is their baseline, that's their reference. So we need to be able to communicate in order to be able to, uh, to speak the same language. And part of, I think, um, the solutions for things like that is the incorporation of citizen science type issues. And Mark Boyce at the University of Alberta developed a Moose app, and we're working with the Alberta Conservation Association right now in order to take that application, perhaps add other species, and that gets people that are in the field seeing wildlife to be able to record the time, geographic uh, 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 location of these, the class of animal, and that is um, information that is additive and supplemental and augments our data and, yeah. and I and think it's a good it's a good yeah. um, f you know for the more rigorous scientific studies it's a good the citizen science is a good um, reality check yeah. you know so if you got oh we're showing very low densities of mountain goats or something in this region and then you're looking at the citizen science data and all of a sudden you're going like okay what's what's amiss here like because there's a big yeah. gap between these yeah. two things so they, they can really complement each other there and, and you know in no way are we going to move away from uh statistically rigorous sampling designs and surveys and so forth that's our bread and butter that's what we do every day um but we could certainly use uh, an augmentation of knowledge and information into our decision making and that's where the stakeholder information comes yep. in yeah, because I mean, it, it is a, a common gripe you hear, especially in the hunting community. It's just like, why are they not talking to us? We're out there all the time, yeah. those sorts of things. And yeah. we, we have the similar thing in British Columbia with a with a moose app, um, you know, and it, it it's the I think the, the data that's coming out of that is sort of like the um, like how many uh, uh, moose per user hour are being encountered. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of the, the, the metric. Yeah. you know and and uh but it is an opportunity for people to be involved and and it's good for hunters as well and, and it's sort of um you, you know when they see the results of their own observations collectively occurring in a year and able to compare that to our aerial surveys i think that's very useful for for them and i think the transparency and availability of what we would call government data in the past well, it's really everyone's data. And if we can 
put that into a format by which they can access it and uh, and see the fruits of their labor, the fruits of of the labor of uh, of the people that are entrusted uh, with managing the resource, with how we do it, where we do it, and what the results are. I think that's mm-hmm. that's fair game. And, and even even conversely, like in you know engaging like. Uh, non-hunters, I look at the valuable contributions there, and I believe it was, it was here, it was in southern Alberta, like in the 70s or 80s, where the bird watchers had discovered that that golden eagle migration along the east slope of the Rockies. Oh, wow. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, that, like that is nobody so cool. nobody knew about it. And, and it's like literally like golden eagles all the way, like, you know, yeah. as far north as they are in North America were all like the ducks filtering wow. down, but they followed the east slope of the Rockies, yeah, yeah. like all, all the way south. And it was, it was birders, you know, like I might have even been like in the Bow Valley, Waterton part of it, we're like seeing these birds, like lots of them, like at super high elevation yeah, and just streaming out. And like, it was just and, a remarkable get, contribution yeah. to science and, and if, conservation. And if we can get cross-sectional um, participation by all sorts of user groups and, you know, in the past, we've always defined user groups as being either consumptive or non-consumptive. And uh, I think, you know, I think we need to move beyond that, and I think we need to be a little bit more holistic in our approach to looking at it. All of us, all human beings, uh, uh, by virtue of our biological reality, we're consumptive uh, species. We're consumptive of energy. We transfer energy in the landscape. We transform landscapes. Our our footprint, uh, we could be living in five square meters of area under a sod roof and we still have an effect there's still species that will feel uh the effect of our presence on the landscape and we will compete with other species we'll you know consume food compete for food take up space and so forth and i think it's important for us to realize that we all have an effect an environmental footprint on the landscape we're not just non-consumptive users or consumptive users I think there's different stages by which and different levels by which human beings will be able to interact uh, with their environment. And I think that's important. One of the most interesting questions that has been asked of me and a pile of others are, uh, and this usually involves like human wildlife conflict and, you know, that species was here first, therefore, you know, the primacy is, is the, you know, deciding factor of, you know, who does what. Um, but uh, one of the questions was, are human beings part of nature or separate mm-hmm. from nature? <clears throat> yep. And my answer is, you know, and this is, I, I'm not smart enough to come up with it on my own. Took a considerable amount of reading. And, and uh, you know, one of the researchers, uh, Holmes Ralston, uh, speaks about getting closer and closer to nature. And I think that's a, a complex argument. But my response is always, well, we're both. Uh, we're part of nature in that we're a biological organism. Uh, we um, use energy, we grow, we reproduce, uh, and and we die. Uh, our energy is, you know, uh, and our carbon is passed on from, you know, one trophic level to the next. And uh, we're very much biological organisms in that sense. But as people like uh, Richard Dawkins or Dan Dennett, have said, you know, 
biophilosophers and, and eco-philosophers uh, is that human beings uh, are, are one of the only species, uh, I think Dan Dennett says, the only species that will have behaviors that are contrary to the benefits of natural selection. So some people have said, well, that's having a conscience. So, you know, us showing environmental stewardship just isn't uh, for our long-term interests. We have other values that we place on wildlife that are based on intrinsic value of those uh, uh, of those elements in nature. Yeah. So I think that's our degree of separation. Um, um, I think that question is is might be at the root of a lot of people's personal philosophies that pit one against the other. Consumptive, non-consumptive is whether fundamentally you believe. You know, your yeah. humans are part of nature or they're not because people tend to think, you know, in those terms of the either or as opposed to what you're talking about. It's sort of like, well, we're both. I can be both a yeah. consumptive and a non-consumptive user. There's, It's blurry. It's not clear. It's there. It's, you can't categorize me as yeah. as, as a person. Um, and It's you not know, binomial in nature. <laughs> yeah. right? It's not a, a one or a zero in, in any but in any respect. Pe- people think like that, and the media play off that, and and try to you know partition people into yeah one or the other. There's a really good book, um, *Sapiens*. Uh, it's called *Sapiens* by Harari, and uh, it's a it's a really good read. And basically, what it outlines is you know how people uh, have evolved and how our abilities to communicate. Uh, to assemble um, as societies uh, have had a huge amount of effect on our collective intelligence and our individual intelligence and how we actually evolve to be a species that has a profound effect on our environment. And uh, those are really, really interesting. And I think, you know, um, we as, you know, um, people that live on a landscape live in a place that we enjoy um, not only because of, of, of the infrastructure and the communities that we have as human beings, but part of our natural environment as well, part of the wildlife by which we interact with very, very often. Um, I think we, we have a responsibility in order to look at how we as human beings interact with our environment and how we came to be and what is our role and is coexistence a realistic thing well, and those questions are pretty important. Um, the mortality of wildlife. Um, you know, quite often, I think, we are painted a very romantic image of life and death in, uh, in places like the boreal forest that, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a blue jay or a, or a magpie will curl up into the fetal position and you know, cross the bar gently into that good night late in the winter and his feathered relatives will hold, you know, their, their, uh, uh, their wingtips and, and that's how wildlife dies. Well, no, <laughs> wildlife doesn't cross the bar or go gently into that good night, as, as Dylan Thomas would say. You know, wildlife gets eaten by other wildlife if it slows down or gets old. Uh, wildlife freezes to death. These aren't pleasant, you know, uh, interactions. Um, wildlife is beautiful. They have, you know, we'd like to be anthropomorphic and say, you know, this is cute or that animal's really happy or, or so forth. But, 
it's a very biologically real environment and it's very dangerous for us as human beings to place our own emotions or judgments on these natural environments there's there's a value unto itself and i think we have to respect that level of wildness i think that's part of the reason why we're different from wildlife is that conscience and that environmental awareness of where we are with respect to wildlife is really key yeah i mean those are definitely there's a couple things in there that you know some people you know are are going to disagree with because they do believe you know these animals to have have a much higher level of consciousness and thought and you know oh, yeah. premeditation you know yeah. and those 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 sorts of and, things and which you know still what? a lot of them you know there's a lot of you know like in Harari's book he talks about uh, these monkeys I don't I don't remember what species of monkey they are but. Uh, you know, they'll be foraging high in an in a arboreal canopy for berries or nuts or, or whatever. And they're competing with each other to see who can get all these nuts. And one of the monkeys figured out um, that if they use the shriek or the, you know, the vocalization that there's a lion nearby, then it scatters all the monkeys. Like, there's a lion nearby, get out of there. And if they're able to fake all their buddies out, then they have more access to the forest, right? <laughs> so there's all sorts of mechanisms that, you know, we're starting to learn about wildlife uh, in terms of their natural levels of intelligence, uh, intelligence and so far. But there's clearly a distinction uh, for a number of reasons, uh, physiologically evolutionary uh, basis in terms of self-awareness and and thought processes and the ability to to communicate in a right, really complex way and talk about abstract notions that uh, Harari has has identified in his book as well as a number of others that separates human beings from that. But yeah. you know we're always but, but going we to agree have, like yeah. you know as, as biologists, hunters, ecologists, and stuff. I mean we agree that animals are not robots either, right? No, like, I mean they're absolutely they're, not. They're above that. There's there's no doubt about yeah, it. They're, they're thinking creatures. Yes. They're thinking creatures. They show up, you know, uh, emotive actions and, uh, you know, they live their lives. There's animals that play and play is an established behavior in many species of wildlife. You know, is play useful? Well, maybe, you know, we always ascribe a utilitarian value to things like play well it's learning how to hunt or so so forth so part of all this um this philosophies that people have on on you know humans part of or not part of nature wildlife sentient um you know or or not sort of thing i partly feel like it's some of those philosophies are driving this change i'm seeing in conservation or 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 the changes in, in public perception where we're down to thinking about the individual animal, wanting action at this individual animal versus like populations or, or, or even at the species level, you know, as a decision maker, as a manager, do you, do you think that's real? Is that? Oh, it's definitely real. It's definitely real. And, you know, as I said before, it's, as decision makers, as a like we have names agency. for these things, we have like names for these oh, yeah. wild bears that are living in the mountains, yeah. crossing back and forth between the pro. Oh, there's yeah. um, there's Jane. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, we make a point of not ascribing an, an, a name to an individual, um, you know, animal for that reason. And and as I said before, we're really good at talking about populations and stability. And 
but there's many people that will have individual relationships with uh, you know wildlife as individuals. So there's one bear, that bear is sentient, that bear has feelings, that bear is, you know, um, shows uh, human characteristics, and they do. You know, you cannot help but look at a bear's behavior and say, gee, I wonder what that bear's doing. Yeah, he's probably pretty scared. He's, oh, no, he's determined. And, you know, we tend to be anthropomorphic in that way. We don't know exactly what they're thinking. Um, but, you know, you can tell um, that... Uh, we can identify and it's not difficult nor is it always bad to be anthropomorphic i do it with my dog at home oh scotty you're such a great dog you're the best you really oh you 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 in my wife right my wife's a grade eight teacher she'll say scout you know this is about responsibility scout and we have to show accountability in our action you know and i'm exaggerating of course but yeah. you know that is being anthropomorphic i think the dangers around anthropomorphism occur um, with wild animals and not respecting their wildness. So an animal is in trouble, an animal is injured, we have to rescue it, we have to do that. Whereas if we really respected that animal's wildness, its, its role uh, as an individual within a larger system of events uh, living is, you know, that animal will meet a very different end. And that's part of, you know, respecting wildness. And, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that we can't appreciate wildlife as individuals. But I think when we're dealing with respecting wildlife collectively, uh, we have to respect their wildness. We have to respect natural ecological processes, structures, functions as they occur. And uh, we can't rescue every individual wildlife, nor uh, do I believe we should because of that virtue of wildness, that, that precept. And, uh, you know, I, you know, the other, the others leads to human wildlife conflict. You know, I'm going to do the bear a favor by feeding it and getting to know it and establishing a relationship with this animal. And, you know, it's just, all you're doing is habituating this animal and it may be a wonderful, wonderful animal, but uh, you know, if it's an immature male and it gets to that stage by which its hormones start to rage and it's the spring and it needs to breed or it needs to forage or it needs to establish territory and, you know, its behavior changes and you could be whomever, right? Kind of reminds me of, of Siegfried and Roy and, uh, you know, I think it was uh, Roy who was mauled. The tiger was named Montecor and... Uh, you know, the, the controversy around that was, you know, um, oh no, uh, Montecore sensed that I had a stroke and was going to assist me in some way. Whereas there was another trainer said, no, the tiger just, you know, became a tiger again and boom, and acted in that, in that predatory way or an aggressive way, right? So uh, I think we have to be, as, as human beings, quite aware of the wildness of nature what makes them wild what yeah. makes them wild and respect that yeah and and on the flip side of that same argument of respecting the wildness i i see this uh, in the hunting community when they start talking about um access to be able to harvest certain animals one of the classic ones is with bighorn sheep 
where you get really old rams that uh, their horn growth is slowed down, their horns are busted or wore back. Um, they'll never make like legal curl. So like in British Columbia where it's a full curl, they're, you know, like this is a 10 and a half year old ram that will never make full curl. It's just gonna die and nobody's gonna be able to harvest it. And you know, my position has always been, it's like, that's okay. Because the minute that any animal out there bighorn sheep or whatever does not live 10 11 12 years old lays down somewhere and lets his last breath out and goes back to nature they're no longer wild yeah you know if if hunters are taking every last one of these oldest age classes um and and nature's not claiming most of them then that wildness is not there so out of respect for them being wild I, i i like the idea that there is a portion of those animals out there for whatever recession in horn growth or antler growth or whatever will no longer be quote unquote a legal animal um, based on the restrictions and nature will play its course out for those animals. That's important to me as a hunter to know that. And it's very important to us as managers as well. And it goes back to what we were discussing earlier about how we live with and coexist with and view wildlife and how do we see human beings and context of nature and it goes to that question so if that you know old ram isn't harvested by a hunter and i've heard that this this word used well then it's wasted (laughs) right so you know or if this fish that is going to die naturally in a lake isn't harvested and used then it's wasted and it's that you know wildlife as purely as a widget you know uh, of production and to be used for a human utility and you know that's certainly not the case uh we can certainly enjoy the utility value the experiential value um of 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 hunting and consuming that animal and we could certainly do that but uh uh, you know we can't control if an animal dies naturally or not nor should we you know and uh, i don't believe anything's really wasted uh, in nature, it's used in one form or another. And, uh, you know, it's quite interesting where you brought rams and ram ages and sizes. It's certainly an issue in Alberta. And, uh, you know, people, you know, have a lot of passion. We have, you know, uh, almost 3,000 sheep hunters in Alberta, 25, 2,800, something, something along those lines. And, and uh, they are an extremely passionate lot. And they want to see the persistence of bighorns to occur throughout Alberta. And and they're extremely passionate. They will spend piles and piles of money to be able to do that. Uh, but there's a lot of things in play. And it's not just hunting uh, that is that is an issue. We've got a lot of habitat, forest ingress, natural levels of predation, access into the backcountry. And those those are all issues that we have to deal with. Yeah. So what do we want to see? You know, ultimately, what are our values and how does that look like in terms of a long and a short-term wildlife management objective? So if we just want to maintain, you know, rams on the landscape, well, we can do that. And in, in, in Alberta, our harvest has remained relatively steady for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And, uh, and 
you know, we're, we're harvesting four-fifths curl rounds. We're harvesting full curl rounds. This year, we're harvesting some really good specimens that are coming in as well. So, you know, we, we have to look at all those different values. And we also have to look at opportunity versus, you know, other values people may have. Some people don't care about the size of rams or their age or anything. They care about having the opportunity in order to be able to go out and actively hunt these. The these experience of a high mountain hunt. On, on an annual <clears throat> basis. And other people are very concerned about the quality and the age class distribution and the abundance within di- different age classes and what the representation is. And those are all really interesting questions for sure. Absolutely. Let's shift gears for a second here on species. Um, These do not occur in British Columbia where we live and it absolutely fascinates me and I hope I could get a chance to hunt them someday. Your pronghorn. Oh, so pronghorns, you know, really amazing, amazing uh, wildlife. Antelope capridae family. So, you know, I, I often think about uh, pronghorn populations in Alberta. They're very, very much so ephemeral. They're very, very susceptible to, um, you know, patterns of, 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 of weather. If we get a really bad winter and we see pronghorn die-offs occur, it will occur in usually a pre- pretty catastrophic way. Um, so in terms of population, even these big, yeah. uh, um, hailstorms that you oh, have on the prairies yeah. and you hear stories of like yeah. 30% of your antelope yeah. population or, or, you know, the amount of forage that they have access to and the quality of that forage, you know, well, is their population stable because of, you know, lack of food and, you know, are you getting enough rain? Are you getting enough vegetation? Is it palatable? Is it nutritious? And, uh, you know, because they do, they will expend a fair amount of energy. So they're more sensitive than a mule deer? I don't know the degree uh, of sensitivity difference between them. Um, Mule deer will, uh, you know, snow depth is snow depth and access to forage is, is access to forage. If it's difficult for a mule deer, I'm sure it'll be difficult for a pronghorn as well. Um, you know, I, if I if I had to bet on one of them, I would say a mule deer is probably a little bit more robust in terms of of how it's going to deal with the conditions. But I'm I'm just speculating based on body size and, and plasticity in response to habitat type. Uh, mule deer are pretty plastic in that way. Even white tails are more so. But you know, those three species are quite susceptible to severe winter conditions and mortality to occur. So your population of pronghorns here in Alberta, are they they're, bad they're rec- holding their own? Yeah, they're recovering right now. I think we have abundant populations of, of pronghorn in, uh, you know, the southeast portion of Alberta. Uh, and of course, they, you know, we have population densities. So Fort McLeod area, east, oh, Lethbridge oh, east. Oh, yeah. Or even, you know, we have them on a, uh, you know, accidental vagrant basis to occur as far north here as Edmonton, <laughs> really? Fort Saskatchewan, just northeast of the city, uh, or by the airport, you know. So that that is well outside their range. But I mean, uh, uh, a historical ox, historically uh, were they? I uh, I'd have to check. There's some there's some great records um, of antelope sightings, like even near the Beaver Hill Lake area, historically among uh, 
uh, the Métis settlers that uh, occurred out there, and that's just east of the city here. So, you know, uh, uh, but I do think their core range is in the prairies and prairie habitats and not as far north here in the parkland. So they're in southern Alberta, they're they're sort of the northern extent of like the eastern Montana yes. population. Okay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, our populations, uh, I think, are they're growing um, age class distribution. Um, there's still young populations from what we're seeing. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're still good right so now. So when you say they're recovering, are they recovering from a downturn from... Yeah, we had a harsh winter, winter a few years okay. ago, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and, you know, we had late winter storms occur a couple of years ago, and uh, even three or four years ago, I don't remember the exact year, but uh, the late winter and the persistence, and, and I've read that with respect to both pronghorn and, and deer... Um, you know, winter severity is one of the factors. Snow depth and access to available forage is a factor. But, you know, from the beginning of winter to the end of the winter is basically, um, you know, what's going to hold out before I get green forage? And am I going to be able to last throughout the winter and just hang in there? And the longer the winter is, then that tends to be a real limiting factor as well. Yeah. So if you're not getting to that, you know, good nutritious caloric value, um, you know, uh, in, in, in March and April, then when are you going to get it? You know, and if you get some late winter and that winter persists, then that tends to be a factor. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's a, you like said they're just a, they're a species that, fascinates me i I mean i understand like they were they were in british columbia at one time like like historically um when the climate was different in north america there more of that big sage habitat um was was north up into the rocky mountain trench so Apparently, antelope and bison and stuff ranged into yeah, into were, that parts were, of the they Rocky were, Mountains, they were, and they'll find evidence of antelope and archaeological sites yeah, and stuff and, in the Rockies. And bison but, as well, yeah. especially in the trench. Yeah, and it's amazing, you know, the, the trench goes quite a ways north, and to see an antelope somewhere there would the, be to, fascinating. To, to have been there, yeah. We um, had a we had an incident of a musk oxen uh, range south into just north of Fort Chippewan in Alberta. And, uh, you know, it was harvested pretty darn quick, you know, and it didn't last, but can you it imagine? It seems to be the way the grizzly yeah. bear that goes to the Arctic or swims to Vancouver Island. Yeah, it's something. The polar you know, bear it, that comes too far south. Nothing really surprises me anymore in the wildlife world. I've seen a lot of different things and, you know, you have your, your belief system and, and all of a sudden you see a species that's well outside its range and you go, really? You know, and, uh. So now, there were some studies that were rele- released or, uh, not that long ago, uh, midsummer, that was kind of looking at the declines of of birds uh, in in Canada and sort of like across the board, like you know, all different guilds were sort of on the decline, um, except one of the ones in Canada that seemed to be either holding their own or on the increase are the waterfowl species. Our, our waterfowl, especially on tenure averages are you know the highest that they've been in decades and uh you know the golden years are now with respect to waterfowl especially around things like uh you know our mallard populations our snow goose populations 
Canada goose populations or white-fronted goose populations, they're quite high right now. And the, the interesting uh, element is, uh, it's funny because I just noticed, I use the word interesting a lot because a lot of things interesting. It is interesting. And, and a lot of things interesting. Fascinating. And, and, and we used to have a population of waterfowl hunters around 60,000. I'm just sort of guessing right now. I think the peak occurred in the late 80s. Now we're down to 20,000. And there's this inverse relationship in waterfowl populations. Now we've got 20,000 hunters, and you've got big populations in waterfowl. And, I've, uh, seen, I've seen those graphs, and it, that's pretty much the case clear across Canada. Yeah, there's this yeah. big, from 70s, 80s, it's just like the numbers of waterfowl hunters in Canada have, are, yeah. are, are dropping, and um, it's like... Delta waterfowl and the U of A here through Dr. Howie Harshaw and uh, Dr. Lee Foote as well of uh, across Canada Jurisdictional Survey, and NAWAMP has been involved as well to determine what the, you know, possible causal elements and factors, the motivations around waterfowl hunting participation, uh, and what are those dynamics, and, you know, how are they being influenced in the uptake by, you know, youth and, and a variety of others. And Howie Harshaw presented some preliminary work uh, a couple of years ago in uh, when we were in for the NAWAMP meeting in uh, in Virginia and some fascinating information there you know pretty pretty interesting sociology and uh, you know uh, what people value in terms of a recreational experience and, and and how they live and you know all the issues around waterfowl hunting and access and cost and you know different you know requirements you need to have and it's really really uh, i'm really looking forward to howie's results jurisdictionally to, to and look at alberta and see what's going on what's here. going on here yeah so so sixty thousand to twenty thousand yeah. waterfowl hunters yeah. in this province is yeah. is pretty big i mean yeah. alberta saskatchewan or or the bread and butter provinces of of canada for your big waterfowl yeah Hunting still community. are, still yep. are, but um, but at a reduced yeah, reduced yeah. scale, yeah. Huh. And and we still have you know issues around, um, you know, different waterfowl hunters will say, you know, I'm finding it really really difficult in order to secure shoots, and uh, we, you know, we have a, a large private land base, agricultural land base in Alberta, and. We have, you know, an urban-suburban growth as well occurring and a lot more acreages occurring adjacent to some of our urban municipalities. And, uh, and since our human population has increased, then our use of our landscape has also increased. So we're gonna, there's going to be challenges around access, both on uh, provincial crown lands as well as private lands. Yeah, and I think when I sort of the stuff I followed down in the United States are finding the same thing with, you know, these big tracts of private land that are, you know, changing maybe from, you know, multi generational, you know, ranching families and lands that would allow and support access to hunters to maybe, you know, wealthy people from Florida that buy big acreage in Montana and stuff, and they're just like, nope. No yeah, hunting on our yeah, land, and yeah. and hunters are feeling the effect of that there. So yeah, and uh, you know, we have the North American model of wildlife conservation, and and there's different tenets in that model that I think Western Canada is 
is well ascribed to um, and uh, and there's shifts in both in terms of that model occurring on both sides of the border but there's slower shifts occurring here so one of the um, issues that we have given the amount of private lands or uh, provision for incentives for landowners to allow hunters on the landscape and I think for the most part Albertans enjoy the North American model with respect to public ownership of the wildlife resource and uh, 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 access to that resource uh, in terms of uh, no fee or remunerative uh, uh, value so so we do enjoy that privilege in order in order to be able to access lands without the expectation that we have to pay for the hunting access but in the states it's it's quite a bit different mm-hmm. yeah well, i mean as you know they always say the the states is their issues are 10 years ahead of ours so yeah and there's there's also other things so you know, last year I gave a presentation to the Alberta Fish and Game Association. It's the equivalent of BC Wildlife Federation. Yep. And I compared Alberta to a number of other similar jurisdictions in terms of wildlife diversity and, and opportunities. And both BC and Alberta have, you know, much fewer hunters. Our hunter density is something like, you know, we have, uh, you know, one hunter one hunter per you know uh, i don't i i don't even want to say like a pile of square kilometers yeah yeah where where you go into some of the states and they're talking numbers of hunters per unit area right interesting (laughs) is pennsylvania has something like nine hundred thousand hunters or three hundred thousand it's ridiculous i think it's nine hundred thousand nine hundred thousand hunters and they pulse in like a three-week rifle season and you know the density of hunters there is just yeah you know so when you look at access and and and, like and that, then you throw in the crazy stats like they harvest a you know yeah a, a yeah. million white-tailed deer in that state and 70 percent of them are taken on the first day of the yeah. season yeah, yeah it's and just, you know in, in places like colorado and other places like hunter success is high and you know the harvest is i mean there's a pile of animals out there and i think through you know incremental changes that Polly's ratchet effect right they probably got to a, a place by which you know opening day closed the schools and the offices and you and 899,999 hunters are out there on the landscape and you know you got to get your deer uh, so experientially that is quite a bit different uh, we would I mean, can you imagine going somewhere like that and saying, okay, it's opening day of deer season, uh, 900,000 people. I've got, you know, 58 square meters on a tree stand and I am pumped. You know, it's, it's just not real. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's Cause, their... Because I can, from my tree stand, I can hear f- four other cell phones ringing. Yeah, and people, yeah. yeah. And, you know, oh, <clears throat> kind of reminds me when I was in uh, Germany hunting and... Uh, uh, one of one of my German uh, hunting friends, um, Christian, really really interesting guy, German forester, and the the foresters in Germany are sort of the equivalent to the biologists and land managers out here. And uh, Christian, one of Christian's favorite jokes is, you know, what is the single greatest 
you know, type, you know, classification of hunting accident that occurs in Germany. And it's, and I say, well, tell me, Christian. He says, well, it's the hunters falling out of their tree stands and landing on their Mercedes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I just, you know, it's the urban sort of hunter density thing. And, and uh, you know, when I was hunting in Germany, I was hunting for roebuck. It was so funny because uh, my friend Bernard, he uh, he picked me up in a Mercedes, right? This is after Christian told me that joke. <laughs> picked me up in Mercedes. We went out to the stands, you know, the elevated stands. In Poland, they're called Ambona. And uh, when you go into the churches and cathedrals in Poland, the pulpit in the back is called an Ambona as well. So you're actually calling them the pulpits. And uh, it's fascinating. You're hunting <laughs> from the pulpits in the spring for roebuck yeah. in the fields. And, uh, yeah, the Mercedes isn't parked that far away. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Jeez. Wow. Man, that's an awesome uh, rundown of everything you got on the go in Alberta here. really appreciate all the, the, the knowledge you imparted on us and educate our listeners about <clears throat> what's going on here in Alberta. Yeah, thank you very much, yeah. Mark and Curtis. It's um, uh, been really good. So just before we wrap up, we've got a couple things you need to explain uh, to us. So what's your favorite way to cook the mallards? Oh, gosh. It's like saying, what's your favorite alcoholic beverage? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's your favorite food? I, it's, it's interesting because I... So what oh, I will the, tell you two ways. What are the different ways that you I cook your mallards? I will tell you two Two of my favorite, favorite ways. So lately, what I've done is I'll take um, I'll take the breasts from a mallard and skin attached, and I will basically give them um, you know like a Cajun rub, Cajun spice um, rub, and then I will grill them, not for two minutes, not for one minute and a half, not for two minutes, four seconds, but two minutes exactly per side and sear them. Then I'll set them aside to rest. And then this is the most decadent sandwich. Ever. And, and my colleague, uh, he's our commercial wildlife specialist here in, in the office, Dave Kay. And he is, uh, he's big in every sense. He's a big man. He's got a big appetite. He's got a big voice. He's extremely well-read. He came up with this recipe and it's wonderful take a fresh ciabatta bun you take that duck breast you put some arugula on it you take some fig jam or fig jelly a slice of apple some brie cheese two big wax of brie cheese you collapse that sucker and it is decadent it is so incredibly mm. good this morning what i did is i had some time and i plucked a couple of really nice big big mallards that had that nice orange fat on their on the breast and what i'm one way i really enjoy doing that is i like to sort of parboil it in the chinese style um, and hold it over a pot of boiling water and then just get that gloss going and then i will uh i'll put it on the barbecue indirect heat and i'll use a lewing sauce so it's like a a sweeter sauce it's that typical sort of sauce when you go for dim sum on chinese restaurants and that delicious sweet sort of duck sauce that barbecued duck sauce yep and and i'll just you know every 10 minutes i'll just ladle lewing sauce over it and then i'll turn the duck over 
and I'll get that crispy skin over a longer period of time and that sweet sort of barbecue flavor into the flesh. And I love it. I could eat every day. Just love it. Wow. And uh, so finally, tell us a little bit about your four-legged hunting partner. Oh, gosh. So Scout um, Scout is a long-haired Weimaraner. He's my second long-haired Weimaraner. When I left BC, um, my two German forestry friends, uh, as a parting gift, gave me a long-haired Weimaraner named Tess, a female. And she was such a great hunting dog and a great companion dog that I just wanted another long hair Weimaraner. So my friend Reiner, the source of all wisdom uh, amongst German foresters, uh, goes, well, I mean, you you need a dog with um, the, the hunting pedigree that uh, will do exactly what you need, and you can only do that in Germany. Call this number, Tanya. So I called uh, this breeder in Germany, Tanya, from Von Femris Wolf Kennels. And, you know, uh, she, I said who I was, and she said, uh, oh, and who do you know, and who referred you? And I said, well, <laughs> Reiner Munter from, from uh, Fruitvale, B.C. Reiner Munter, that is the owner of uh, Birko von Hassenlager and Falco, you know, this dog. <laughs> They both scored the following in the hunt tests, and I know Heiner quite well, and you know, and and so that was step one into the door, and then the second thing was I'm interested in one of your pups, you know, what do you? And of course, I didn't tell my wife any anything about this, right? So this is this is the elaborate thing, and I got to tell this story because it's great. Uh, so the first thing Tanya did is, she said, "I will call you back." So she got a hold of Reiner and basically. It was like a background check slash reference check. <laughs> so, and then she called me. She said, okay, um, you must hunt with the dog. That's a prerequisite. Will you do that? Yes. Yep. How many days a year will you hunt? Oh, lots. How many is lots? <laughs> you know, and what will you hunt for? Where will the dog live? Where will it be kept? Will you run the dog in the following tests? And, you know, this and that. And it was like a job interview, but way more intense. So once Tanya was satisfied, barely, that uh, I'd get this dog, and I thought, you know, just, okay, ship me a pup. Uh, and she had a litter on the way. Um, well, no, you, you, we, we won't just ship you a dog. <laughs> we have to meet you. You come here, and you will hunt a roebuck in May. So I thought, oh, crap, this is going to cost. <laughs> so anyway, I went with my friend Reiner, who put me in touch with him. He said, well, he'd like to buy a dog, too. Uh, so my other friend, my lawyer friend, Richard in BC, he said, Hey, I'll go with you. We'll hunt Roebuck and then we'll bring two dogs back with us. I went, okay. Okay. So we had this sort of deal and I told my wife and I said, okay, we're going to go to Germany. We're going to go hunting Roebuck. Yeah, that's great. We'll have a great time. So I went with Richard and we hunted on the Graf von Spies estate and Richard knew the lawyer because my friend Richard in Nelson he's a lawyer and he dealt with um like the Darkwoods forestry in the Kootenays yep and before it became the conservation lands before yep. it became the conservation lands and the lawyer uh Dr. Richter um it was basically owned by German royalty so the the duke or the count Graf Spee 
So Richard swung us this deal where we hunted on the Graf Spies estate in near Dusseldorf, near Almay. And it was, I mean, you're hunting manicured, like, uh, gardens with, you know, these little bridges occurring across these little moats that are flowered and full of bushes. Like mini golf. Yeah, like mini golf. <laughs> and then this roebuck, you know, barking at you. Row, row. And, you know, in the background on the edge of the estate, there's, you know, mountain bikers going by and like, <laughs> do not shoot. Make sure the deflection, the angle of deflection is good so you won't shoot anyone. Remember the mushroom pickers? You know, so it, it's that sort of uh, environment. So Richard got a roebuck there, and we went into the castle, and they had like a game processing room, you know, the size of my garage, and, you know, a freezer, a bar, and it was very much a social um, atmosphere in there as well. And, you know, the game was hung. Uh, of course, it had the last bite. You know, yep. uh, vegetation in its mouth, yep. and and you know, a branch yes. of hemlock or not hemlock, but uh, um, uh, evergreen or or um, uh, hazelnut was was or oak was dipped in the 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 quarry's blood and then put on their on their cap, and there's a handshake and the whole works. And uh, so Richard was like tickled, and we're in the Graf Spies estate drinking his beer and this roebuck and it was this really really neat culture experience and then uh, a few days later we hunted in the forest where tanya the weimaraner breeder her husband was the area forester and it was just fascinating so we hunted from the stands and you wait for the roebuck to come into the meadow and 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 so i got a roebuck a nice roebuck and michael the the forester removed the roebuck's head and and well, we did the entire ceremony with the last bite and so forth. Yep. But the roebuck's head was placed on a platter surrounded by evergreen on the lunch table. And you know, after the hunt, and we were back at the home, we had schnapps, and you know, we had this roebuck head in the middle of the table. And it was very much a reverence of respect for the animal um, to do that. And and I always when I talk to hunters and I provide a hunter's message, I say, treat the animal with respect, both in life and in death as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So it was very reverentially placed on that table. And then we had this wonderful stew and beers and, you know, it was just wonderful. Anyway, Scout is a wonderful pup at this time. So we throw the dogs onto the uh, plane at Frankfurt and we arrive in Calgary and I put Scout into the, um, truck that I had parked there and I drove to Edmonton and I come home I go, how was your trip how was your trip great great by the way we have a new puppy his name is Scout he's a long haired wine runner and it was like <laughs> you what you bought a dog why couldn't you we didn't have a chance to talk about you know what in 10 minutes she was smitten he's a wonderful dog now. I just love this dog. Scout now that you're a member of the household we're going to think about accountability okay so it just went from there right so uh, but since then he's been by far my best dog uh, wow. I've had a lab and you know my other Weimar on her and he's got so much energy and being a versatile dog um, he is all legs and he has such good hunting drive and uh, he's been great on everything well wow. bunnies jackrabbits uh, uh grouse of all kinds waterfowl of all kinds 
on water, on land. Uh, just a great dog. Well, a great character. He's definitely an individual that I can be anthropomorphic about. <laughs> well, yeah. Curtis and I were talking this morning. I says, ah, I should get a dog that can kind of like do everything. Snowshoe hares, ducks, upland. So sounds like I might have to go on a roebuck hunt. Oh, you, you have to do that. You need, <laughs> if you want to get a dog, you have to go to Germany and hunt roebuck. Oh, that's the wow. deal. Wow, that's a that's an <laughs> awesome story, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so um, much. Imparting on uh, uh, your programs here in Alberta and these great hunting stories, and uh, look forward to keeping in touch with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity and the experience, and enjoy Alberta. And uh, I urge you to come back and hunt and enjoy the natural landscapes here. We look forward to it. Thanks yeah, for totally. listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. <laughs> <laughs>